Hey everyone, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Canada Day. Happy 4th of July. Happy summer. Hope today's episode finds you safe and optimistic during these crazy times. We continue our series and conversation today with business leaders and founders as we move forward alongside the pandemic. And if you follow the cannabis sector at all, today's guest needs no introduction. It's Bruce Linton, founder and former chairman and CEO at Canopy Growth. In this one, Bruce and I discuss how he's feeling since his departure from Canopy and what he plans on doing next, his philosophy around the three Ps and why each is critical to hypergrowth in any company, the role of leader versus the role of CEO, how Canopy grew to 4,000 employees and ensured they brought on the right talent, the commercialization of cannabis both here in Canada and in the US and around the world, the role of psychedelics as therapeutics, and way more. And with that intro out of the way, let's get to the show. Here is my great conversation with Bruce Linton. So it's been about a year since your departure, since the $5 billion deal with Constellation. But initially, I think you said you weren't bitter, you were sad. Um, oh, yeah. how, do, how do you feel now? I'm still sad. Um, I'm not bitter. I, in fact, somebody gave me a book and they said, you may not have known this is what you were doing, um, but if you did know what you were doing in terms of how you were growing the business, you might have had a different view on how, whose money you brought in. It's called uh, Blitz Scaling, and it's by a guy named uh, Reed Hoffman. LinkedIn. And companies, yeah, and so he's, he, he's fa- he was an early investor in a bunch of companies, co-founder of LinkedIn, but Blitz Scaling is... Actually, how I, I had no idea. I think I've been blitz scaling my life because what blitz scaling says is that your primary objective is to accelerate forward and that you're not following the rules of business in that you have so much data and then you analyze the data for so long and you make a determination that is 98% probably true. Blitz scaling says that if you have more than 50% of the information, you should make all the decisions and your goal, well, it's not growth at any cost. It's an inversion of what they taught all the people who ran General Electric. And as you would know, General Electric was probably the most darling company of the stock exchange for a long time because they always incrementally did these things and had such steady state growth. And I had a shirt and a phraseology. I loved being disruptive. In fact, one of the people who worked at the company on their own money and time made a shirt which said disruptive and they used the T from Tweed to put as the T in disruptive. And disruptive isn't designed where the company gets to keep all of the gains from their disruption. In fact, the consumers keep a huge percentage, but the net losers are the prior companies that didn't disrupt themselves. And um, in Canopy, I think that was essentially our objective. The goal of this blitz approach is to be number one. And so the way I described to everybody that was joining in the first several years is that our objective in doing this is a few things. And a few things you'll know if you're doing it right. One is, um, I have no interest in building something that does not get off the ground. So we're either going to be a spaceship that takes you to another universe or a firework of some substantial size that explodes midair, both of which are fascinating to watch, one of which is suitable to ride. But that's what we're doing. And if you don't want to get on that kind of ride, I think you can die very quickly as a business or simply being number two or three. And it's very clear, like 
there are great examples in his book of the number one company you know still, but there was a number two and three and they're out of it. And in every space, because of globalization, interconnectivity, standardization, there's only going to be one or two that dominate. There was a period three years ago, maybe five years ago, you would say, you know, nobody can get by as a doctor without prescribing oxy. Well, the company that informed that view has a whole bunch of liability and not much current value. And so um, disruption can be a bunch of factors come together concurrently. So I'm sad because if you got on a ride, you think it's either a rocket ship or a spaceship. And instead, what you get is a Zoom bus back to Earth um, called a layoff. I think anybody who's crazy enough to get on a rocket ship or a spaceship should probably at least have a parachute and be told, gently float down to Earth, not Zoom, uh, you're, you're laid off. And so I've had probably, I have no idea how many people reach in, hundreds who want to know what, what's next. And I have to explain to them that um, the window in time in which Canopy was created was very unique, uh, possibly once in a lifetime. And so what you have to do is sadly downgrade your expectation of your next ride. Like it may be very pedestrian. Do you have a filter or framework for deciding what's next? Martello and, and Rockify, I don't know if you're still involved there. I love Rockify. Yeah, no, I do a um, ton with Rockify. So you're I, still I, like I, I crazy busy. I mean, are, are you applying a different kind of filter? Or are you thinking about blitzscaling for your next thing? What's your criteria for choosing what's next? Well, I can tell you the reality is, is if you sit home and read it in the newspaper, you're hearing what people did about six months earlier or a year earlier. So uh, when I was out, I knew for sure. Um, that unless you got in a whole bunch of swim lanes and stayed super active, paddling like crazy, swimming super fast with a bunch of people, you wouldn't actually have the necessary uh, inclusion to have visibility and have knowledge of what's next. And so um, I'm about 11 months into my life after. I'm about eight or 10 months in, and I've got a bunch. Some worked, some didn't. Um, not everybody likes the mentality of blitz. Like, trust me, I'm super friggin' annoying because when I show up, the reason I show up at your company is usually you've said, would you get involved? It's not going as well as we think it could or should, and we need you to get here. And then we'll give you a bunch of equity. And if you give us some money, we'll even give you way more. So when I show up, it's not because you're saying um, it's perfect. What you're saying is we want to achieve more. And with that invitation, I feel it's my obligation to bring my, my perspective to that kind of scenario is that I show up with a 3P like P, like Peter, question set. The first one is, what is the actual plan that we're implementing? What part do you think works? The parts that you don't think, why do you think they don't work? What do you think is happening around us that's going to alter our plan? And can we accept that this plan as it stands now is not sufficiently good and has to be either abandoned and or modified in probably material ways if you want to succeed in a real way? So that's the first P, plan. Second part is I have a P for people. Typically, Places either have accumulated too many or not the right ones. And so what you have to do is lay out an order chart and go through and say, who does what? How much do they get paid? How do, if we had to pick, like, if we could only keep half, which half is it? If we can only keep a third, which third of is it? And you run through this exercise to say functionally and productively, what do we have to do to implement our plan? And what are the key people and which ones? Do? So usually that results in changing some of the people because, you know, it's not working as well as you want. And then the third P is pace and pace is the annoying part of me because pace isn't like running super fast what pace is is a demand on it systems and a demand on inputs so you have a a perspective faster that's not a perfect set of data that you can make more and better decisions every day than you did prior day 
And if you do that, and if you get used to that, and you get to expect that, then you start moving towards that blitz approach, which is you only go by everybody. If you kind of know where you're going, which is your plan, you have the right people who have adopted the right mentality and they want to go for it. And then you have pace to execute. Because if you don't use pace and you don't drive inputs of data and you don't make decisions rapidly, guess what happens? You don't win. There may be a great book describing my three Ps. I have not read it and there's a limited chance I will write it. But that, that to me, sums up how you modify an operating environment that is not operating at its peak performance. Are these three Ps equally important and or equally challenging? You have to have a plan that is more like a foundational statement of method and objective and let people then achieve it. The people have to be willing and comfortable to kick in and drive things. So there is, I read a little brochure once where a company said, um, as a new person or a person who works here, ask three before you ask me, meaning ask three people before you ask the boss. Ask yourself, did I actually really try to figure out what the hell to do here? If that's the case, then ask the person next to you. Do you understand what I'm trying to do? Am I, am I missing something? Is there a way I can get there? And then the third one is ask Google. Like maybe there's an answer out there that is narrow enough you could get that. And then the third one is to come to ask the leader, what should I do? Because if people are in your office all day asking you what to do, you've either been not thoughtful in who you hired, unclear on what the objective is, or you actually don't want them to run the company and make shit happen. You want to. And so um, that is a different process. And then pace. Um, pace is really a function of leadership. Because you can call yourself CEO, but I don't think unless you're hired by a board committee, you're CEO. What you really are is leader. And if you found something and you're a, a good leader, the results will vary dramatically from being someone who calls themselves CEO, but they're a bad leader. If you're the military leader, are you responsible for making sure you have enough provisions that your people don't starve? Yeah, I bet that's your job. Who did it in your job description? So if you're the business leader, um, I think your obligation is to make sure that you're paying fairly and that you have a future value for each person's work that enhances the return beyond their salary, more like a high tech company. And if you're the leader, can you allow a work environment to become unpleasant for some and ideal for others? Nope. And so part of your obligation is sometimes having very hard conversations with some senior people because their uh, mode of you know, dealing with junior people isn't nice. I like when senior people fight with senior people, like argue like cats and dogs. I like that. Like that is a good thing because if everybody goes, oh boy, Johnny, we've got it. You're such a good guy. You've always got the answers. That shit is going to not work out well. And so at a senior level, I think it's important to have really intense arguments about how to get shit done, knowing that you both want the same outcome. If you're arguing with your board, the board should fire you because the board really has no job other than to make sure they have competent management. Can I ask you a follow-up question about people? So too many are not the right ones. How did you go from, say, you know, startup team to, I think, 4,000 or something at its peak yeah. and ensure that you were bringing on the right people, the right talent? Mm, it doesn't always work out that way, but part of what you need to do is think about... Um, codifying who you are. Every place has a culture, right? Like if um, Uber in its early days would have codified their culture, um, it would have said, you know, we're, we're kind of like bankers. Uh, we're win at all costs. 
if we're stronger, we will push down the weaker, but we're going to, we're going to win on that basis and winning is all that matters. They would have a few other things, but you know, it was all about winning and it didn't matter who we had to step on. Um, the culture that we codified had stuff like catch people doing it right. How many times at a, a work environment do you have a perfect month where you screw up once for five minutes and all you hear about is a screw up? That's, you know, really that that's kind of a culture thing um, where it would be better if the environment was positively supportive and noted the exception uh, when something went wrong, but primarily noted when you were doing a good job, when you had good hustle, when you had, you know, nice pace when things were happening. So we codified about eight things. We made sure that everybody who's doing the interviewing really understood who we are, who they are, how they fit in, and watch for that. Everybody's competent that you see, 90, 90% of them. The question is, are they motivated? Do they have a fit? Like if they want to talk about their salary all the time, we want you to talk about equity. Why do you want to own a piece of the company? And why do you want to be in the sector? We're just one company in the sector. Why do you want to be in the sector? Meaning, why do you want to be the disruptor? And so I think... Um, we didn't do a perfect job. We had some, you know, senior positions, mid-level persons, juniors change, but we had almost zero uh, voluntary uh, exits. You've talked about how the Canadian government shouldn't take their eye off the ball with respect to governance um, and globalization, specifically of cannabis. Do you think that the government of Canada is doing a good enough job in this regard? I think they're doing a better job now. Um, they... So this program really kicked into gear under the conservatives. And I give them great credit for having thought about how do they make this a reliable supply chain that has the capacity not only to supply, but also to provide enough funds to educate doctors. How, how do you move this to some place that it's not just grow a few plants in your own or get a license uh, to grow some, you know, they really, they wanted it to become something that was greater and better than it was. And their drivers may or may not have been altruistic, but the result was that was where they're going. The liberals inherited that platform. And the only reason they could make a rec program occur in their first term is because they had the production assets in place. They just had to expand the access logic and make sure there was enough product. But they didn't go out of their way to take over the world um, in either party, for sure not the conservatives and not the liberals, in explaining to everybody how to regulate something effectively. Any health minister on the planet that was contemplating this should have been brought to Canada every time. And they should have had every trade commissioner, high commissioner, ambassador, whatever the heck they're called, out there saying, this is the one differentiated thing in which Canada is leading the world. Like the last time Canada had a lead this great on a topic, I don't know, man, maybe it was like a first phone call or inventing penicillin. Like it was shit that you learned about in history books. We really have never had such a fantastic lead in transforming a segment of the world that exists and is poorly governed, that exists and has poor scientific support. We were in the poll position for five or six years before they started to do a little bit more international work. And um, the downside of that is that they diminish potentially the scope and size of the segment that Canada would own because, you know, it's... Um, we could have ended the debate whether the steering wheel should be on the left-hand side or the right-hand side for this generation of cannabis. Everything, it could have been clearly the Canadian definition of a standard is by default the standard. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. 
I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. In the wake of the pandemic, don't you think that cannabis becomes one of the, like, based on what you're saying, doesn't this become an even bigger revenue generating opportunity on a global scale for Canada, given all the stimulus that's being pumped into the economy? It might for Canada, but it's going to be like, remember, until Trudeau said, elect me and I'll let you as an adult buy cannabis. Until then, there was not a single political really driven will decision was typically courts and and challenges. I think the political will decisions are going to be enormous and and I'm maybe an outlier on it, but uh, show me Saving except for transferring inheritance tax and capital gains. Governments have no current better places to get new income. Are they going to make sales tax like 40%? No. So they're going to try and tackle how do we track cash in when people die and they transfer wealth. They're going to try and make it so that if you build a business, you pay more taxes. But the next thing is an obvious screaming opportunity for taxes, employment, and use of ad, I'll call it, existing abandoned assets is the regulation of cannabis. And I'm telling you, if you're running New York State, you're looking at and saying, I am screwed. I am, I am so in debt. If you're running anywhere because of the pandemic, you know, when you say, well, we're going to have another two or three months of um, the CERB, the COVID cash payment in Canada, we're going to dump $2.2 trillion into the market in America. Um, there are a whole bunch of people going, um, only question is, how the hell are we going to pay for all this? And so if you're now in favor of regulated cannabis, you're in favor of a bunch of jobs and a bunch of asset use utilization and some new taxes. So how do you think things shake out in the U.S. market? So a lot more fragmented in terms of regulation, banking, et cetera. You think the U.S. transforms itself into a more regulated market, maybe even November, perhaps? No. Uh, regrettably, I think November is entirely going to be about COVID and scandals, it's not going to be about positive stuff. I think the result in November is going to be that a whole bunch of states say we've got four more years of doing it on our own, so let's get going and let's move forward. We've got places like Arizona that already have that uh, prepared to go. So I, I just I think you're going to have a lot more states doing it. Uh, at some point in time, someone's going to pass a regulatory framework in Washington that says that if a state has said that you can do it, the feds agree which will mean NASDAQ and other U.S. listings will be able to pull them onto their listings. It will mean that um, they can have full and unfettered access to normal banking instruments because if you're running a cannabis business in the U.S., if you can borrow money anywhere below 12%, you're doing better than everyone else. The effective interest rate in America right now is, what, zero? Um, and there is no demand. with, And these are highly secured loans with tangible assets and high cash flows, and they pay 12%. And a lot of them are paying much higher. There was one company announced yesterday in order to get a bridge, they pay on an annual basis 60%. You can have lost your car because you were so drunk after having lost your job, and you can still get a car loan cheaper than that. Do you think the Ontario provincial government has done a decent job so far? I think if we would have left the stores to be opened like the LCBO ones, we'd be talking about the fifth store is going to open soon, and they would have been in poor locations. So that plan was not a good plan. The halt in saying there's not enough inventory, I think, was a political move. 
but now they're cranking it, right? Like I got people calling me every day saying, Hey, you want to come by for a store opening? We've got one, another one opening in Ottawa. We're going to have this in Toronto. We got this happening in kitchen. They're like, um, they've moved to allow more openings. They've allowed to have things like briefly they said, Oh, Christ, you got to shut them. They said, no, you don't. And then they, they got flexible on things like make it easy to pick it up. Um, so like, I think, um, I think Ontario's, um, on track to actually become a great example of how to do retail. Um, and you know, I'm not cheering for any party, but I, I do cheer for results that work and, you know, how fast and efficient can entrepreneurs open stores in a whole bunch of cities when the licensing permits it versus a bureaucracy? And what would the effect be of the selection at those stores if they were all owned by the government? And I think their online platform now, it's kind of weird. It was like the dumbest idea ever was to only be online and it stressed the hell out of the platform about you know two years ago and a bit ago. Now, if you use their website, they've actually got it working pretty well. And so their online platform as a secondary support from the province actually works very well. The only thing they need to do is allow retailers locally to also do that. Yeah, initially that partnership with Shopify wasn't the best shopping experience, that's for sure. <laughs> it would have been very difficult to determine how to make it worse. Um, even And even now, the categorization, like go on the site, apparently something you drink still lands under the, uh, the heading of edibles. Mm. Um, so like there's still some work to make the categories like there are beverages, there are edibles, smoke, like, you know, they just need to get on with a few more of these things. But overall, it's it's an improving uh, platform. You've talked about key lessons and takeaways from New Brunswick. Are they still number one in your mind in terms of what they're doing? Um, well, I haven't been down there in a bit. And I do know that Brian, who was the guy that ran all of that, left probably a year and a half or two years ago. Um they were number one in as the reason I love them is they actually had they given to the file to someone and said, we really want this to work. You have our support and budgeting, please get going. And so they knew where they wanted their stores. They knew what they wanted to look like. They knew what they thought they could handle from a number of SKUs. Um, they knew what they wanted in terms of like down to the electrical location and plug loads so they could have coolers in the future and no other province even had anybody in charge. Then they got crapped on for not having made enough money on the invested capital. But what they built was super durable and will last and work for the next five years. And they got dumped on in the first two or three months because of electoral stuff. Um, so I thought they were they were a leader in if somebody wanted if if somebody from you know another province said uh, if you ask them who's your go-to person to ask about how what, what mistakes did you make and how did you learn. And they were trying to do it in their own province. They'd call Brian and New Brunswick every time. And so I think they were a great example of that. I do find, um, yeah, when you can have one store, I think it's Nova Scotia is still the only one doing it, where you actually have one store that has cannabis in the back and booze in the front. It makes total sense, right? You're parking your car. You're trying to figure out, am I having wine Friday and Saturday night, or am I going to have low-cal cannabis one night and high-cal booze the next night? You park your car, you go in and make your choices, and you can even pick up your bottle of beverages at the front of the store, walk with them unpaid to the back of the store. You can pay for your bottle of beverages there and your cannabis there and walk out. What you can't do is take the cannabis from the back and pay at the front. And the reason you can't do that is cannabis fits in your pocket better, I suspect. But um, I was amazed, and it's now probably a little more than a year ago, last time I saw one of these, the 
busyness of the cashiers at the back and the lack of business for the ones at the front dealing with just booze only. But I think you're going to find that the, this summer, uh, the potential for the disruption in the calorie intensive versus the no calorie options to just kind of make it a little bit more fun for the afternoon is going to be very interesting to see that data. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. And they can't keep up with the stuff at the stores. If you, if you go to a cannabis store uh, in Canada and look for, um, you know, ready to drink beverages, you better be there the day they get in. I want to come back to something you were talking about earlier, the abandoned assets and the commercialization opportunity with cannabis. You guys were operating out of a former Hershey's chocolate factory, I think, right? In Smith's Falls. Yep. Um, yep. And then you've got your, you had your greenhouse in Niagara on the lake. Um, you've spoken about this, this opportunity of taking a derelict asset and turning it into something. Do you think that economic growth in rural communities accelerates post-pandemic in this manner? Well, probably not in Canada because it's largely, I'd say Canada's, except for science and medical, I would say they've built everything they need and they just have to keep working through everything they have. Um, but like if you're in New York state, you don't have enough grow and you're going to build a grow up in downtown Manhattan. No way, man. Um, so I think by default where the employment lands for a great deal of the cannabis employment is exactly where they need it because they're going to go to jurisdictions where they have a lower cost base, available labor, unused electricity, stuff like that matters when you're uh, building a company that, you know, needs people a place and power. What's next for the industry around the treatment for anxiety, sleep, pain, cognitive function? Are you still as optimistic as you've been in the past? Mm, a bit less. Not because I think um, the potential's less. I just think that unless the big guys all want to spend, and I would say like, you know, when you see the message and whether it's Kronos or Afri or Canopy or Aurora, I would say the messaging has shifted substantially towards the merits of a pure play focus on consumer packaged goods and medicinal outcomes and in my opinion differentiated goods in the consumer packaged goods need an extensive spend on r d and people say oh well they can't afford it i don't know like i use google as an or not google amazon as an example a zillion times of what i thought had to happen at one point in time there's a period where google did about 14 free cash flow, I think, of about $14 billion if they didn't actually spend $10 billion on R&D and about $2 billion on debt servicing. So they only had two left, but it seems to be working out okay for them. So I, I think um, right now everybody's so happy to think about how they could have a terrific tomorrow and show, show investors how profitable they can be, which don't get me wrong, having increasing sales and increasing cash flows is huge. But profitability is a choice that um, is a function of whether or not you think you have a better way to spend the money than simply putting it to the bottom line and someday giving out a dividend. What's your take on the state of affairs in the markets right now? So I'm, I'm not talking specifically about the cannabis sector. I'm talking about the markets more broadly, which seem to be just completely disconnected from what's actually happening in the economy. Well, maybe. Right. Like if there's a phrase I think of is don't bet against the Fed in the U.S. You dump two point two trillion dollars into an economy in a couple of month period. That is a, that is going to make it rebound as rapidly as we've seen. Now, the question is, will the Fed keep giving? And will Trump insist they do somehow so he keeps getting reelected because he's not going to win on if, if the if they quit giving and the stock market collapses by 40 percent, it's going to be hard reelection for him. So I think. Um, 
the recovery is unbelievably fast because the stimulus was unbelievably humongous. Uh, I think it's really weird time. Like uh, the reality is, is there's a ton of unemployed people. Most businesses are operating at a partial operating basis. Supply chains have been broken or disrupted. Um, whole segments of business economy aren't going to restart. Like everything from aviation to entertainment to uh, accommodation, all those segments are screwed possibly they've seen their best days already and it's over. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying nobody's going to go, but like the normal pattern uh, of business involved frequent travel for short durations at locations where you had meeting after meeting and ate in restaurants and, and, and that was the moat. Now we've all figured out how to get a lot of like, you'd still get 90% of all the financing transactions done with none of that, which means everybody involved has a lower cost base, but that direct lower cost base, 100% correlates with the income that's not going to all the parties I mentioned from planes to hotels to restaurants on a daily basis confused to what I think and what I see as a reality versus what I see as the response in the market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are you still actively investing in the cannabis sector? I have invested in probably eight companies, nine companies from psychedelics to software to cannabis. I would say most have done very well despite these crazy times because depending on the state, the um, definition of an essential service or essential good was positive for them. Psychedelics has gone from a terrible idea last July to everybody wants to be in the space. So if you were in early and, and supported early companies, that was a good thing. Um, but, um, you know, now it comes down to every, you, you can like the sector, and I say that's good, but then you have to see what each company's doing. And that really comes down to, you know, um, what is what is the message they have to the street? And so, you know, they're very, they're all over the place now. So I would say mo- more and more are cohesing around the idea of, we're going to show you how we can be profitable. Um, and, you know, Afri and uh, Aurora were pushing on that theme quite early. You know, Canopy's catching up on that total topic. Uh, you know, uh, terrorists and others. So I'm not sure as I'm enth- as enthusiastic about, I'd like to see rapid growth, top line that's amazing, and massive reinvestment. That's the company I would invest in. Because I think, you know what, there's a window of opportunity for me that hopefully is about another 30 years. And if I invest, I don't need my money back. Like if today's Thursday, I don't want my money back next Tuesday. I'm not that kind of investor. I want to see something that's sustaining and robust and really, you know, dominant. I don't fully understand the difference between the roles of the role of psychedelics versus the role of cannabis as relates to the treatment of um, some of the disorders that I mentioned. So talk to me a little bit about the difference there. Well, I would say that um, cannabinoids are complex. We kind of know a little bit about THC and CBD and there's a whole bunch we don't know about. Um, And in psychedelics, um, they're really, most of them are neuromedicine. And the question is, in what quantity, what dosage, and what indications might they be optimal for? So like maybe uh, cannabis or a certain cannabinoid in a certain quantity might be helpful in dealing with um, intense anxiety. Maybe a psychedelic-derived um, product could be very helpful in um, weaning people or eliminating them from demanding or seeking or being addicted to opioids. Um, and so I would see them having potentially collaborative things because one of the things we did at Canopy is we'd supported 
a study on whether or not opioid weaning could be more successful when you use cannabis in concert with other uh, weaning tools. Dealing with something like a ADHD is a different indication necessarily than where cannabis has played well, but it may play well with microdosing of LSD, say. And so there, I would say, are a whole bunch of things that you should just make a picture and say, what are all the indications that I want to go after and what are the best therapeutic thoughts on them? And so superior depressive state might be a psilocybin opportunity, but not a cannabis one. Got it. We're bumpy up on time. Uh, I know we, yeah. <laughs> we've gone over. Uh, I appreciate all the extra time and all the sharing, Bruce. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, thank you. We'll talk to you later. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives' activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.